Hello and welcome to another episode of the Big Picture Skiing Podcast. This week's guest is very special. Isn't that right, Sam? We've got the one of the ex-coaches of the Norwegian Alpine team joining us, along with a former guest, Paul Epstein from Global Ski Racing. Now, really cool chat we had. Some incredible insights from a guy who's coached one of the probably the most successful alpine skiing teams in the world. Sam, what are some of your favorite takeaways from this chat? Yeah, it was a really good chat. Uh, and as Tom said, he's a former coach, but he only stopped coaching the team a couple of months ago. So um, he's really fresh out of it. And he coached, he's coached some of the most promising young stars in the Norwegian team. But when we say promising, by Norwegian standards, it basically means that they're already winning World Cups and they're in the early 20s. Uh, names like Atle McGrath, Lucas Bratton, Johnny really, uh, you know, helped bring these guys up to the fold and him and Paul are, are really good friends. Um, some of my key takeaways, Tom, that I really liked was uh, when Johnny kind of touched on the culture of the Norwegian team, how it's like a cool thing to to train hard, to, to be smart, to... To, to give it your best and, you know, compared to like other places out there, sometimes it's like cool to, you know, do well, even if you're not trying hard. Whereas in, in Norway, they're really giving it 110% from a young age. And, you know, there was like kind of that, that through line where he's talking about how the guys he worked with, like they were, you know, they wanted to be champions from a young age. They didn't just want to make the Norwegian team. Right. And, and that's like, there's a big part of the, the culture there. What about you? For me, I really enjoyed hearing how Johnny would get the athletes involved in movement analysis and video coaching sessions. So, in, you know, he really wanted to make sure that athletes did not rely on him to know whether they'd had a successful run or not. And so that story of where he, he had a, a new athlete on the team and he was trying to coach him on something and he brought Lucas Bratton in to explain explain it from his perspective so same thing but from another perspective so really cool that i think that's very like a a modest trait and realizing you know it's not just about him getting him getting the results he wants the team to get results so back to like the the team environment thing he just emphasized that that so much yeah so that was that was my favorite part it's pretty cool and also having uh him and Paul like playing off each other. Obviously, like they're good friends. They go way back. They used to race together, and now they're both yeah. like really successful coaches. And how like you know they call each other every now and then to, um, you know, if they need if they kind of need uh, someone to vent to or, uh, or yeah, someone even... to like opinion from. You know, it's it's pretty wild that like these guys at this high level like like giving each other advice and backing each other up, even though they're like working for different teams. And also feel that they're not, you know, feel down on themselves at times that they're, they're doing a really bad job and the other one will actually say, no, you're not, you're a great coach. And so it was cool to also listen to yeah. their friendship. So anyway, I think this yeah. is a, a fascinating insight to hear from someone who's coached at the very top level and then Paul coming along to, to add some pieces here and there. I think it's a really fascinating listen. Now on the, on the yeah. coaching side of things, a plug for our business, bigpictureskiing.com. We run online coaching as well as the subscription video library all year round. So at the moment in the off season, we are coaching people getting ready for the winter with our body prep program. And so they do weekly live classes where we uh, check their form and 
to go over various different exercises and people can send in video to check form and the group sort of shares that. And so you learn from everyone else's uh, mistakes or learning, you could say. And we're getting some really great results. People's sort of knees getting a lot better, back pain, all that sort of stuff. And just people getting very ready for the upcoming ski season. And and also, um, Tom, like my favorite part about what we're focusing on at the moment is like body awareness, right? It's not just about strength, mobility, but it's about uh, knowing where your body is in space and like learning in like a safe environment, you know, like learning away from being on snow with the speed, the the obstacles, the terrain. Um, you know, you can really practice the the moves that and that your body should be doing on snow, off snow. And that's right. You know, if you can really own exactly what those positions are then you're going to come back to snow well hopefully skiing better that's our goal at least with our clients yeah. is that they come back skiing left so if I, um, many people so, sort of do do this alongside like their regular gym routine or whatever whatever else they're doing cycling running and find that it complements really really well because of the body awareness piece and you know realizing what their feet are doing so many people are amazed at you know, now when they're walking, they're aware of every piece of their body and how that contributes to better balance and more efficiency and uh, that sort of thing. And then, and like you said, coming into ski season, when you make those short turns or long turns and someone's saying, hey, you need to change this part of the turn, having the awareness to just move one small bit with a couple of little muscles and adjust things without throwing everything else off is, is key to getting to that higher level if i think a good way of putting it tom is if you're someone who uh you know feels one way when they're skiing maybe you're coming down you feel like oh, i'm doing this great run or like things feel different or maybe you don't feel like great at all like let's just say you feel one way on the slopes and then you see a video of yourself and you look completely different right that's like a what we call like a kinesthetic gap like your body awareness is not lining up with exactly what your body's actually doing if if that's you then this is a pretty good program for you. So definitely, um, we're going to have the, the the link in the description, um, or you can go to Big Picture Skiing and just click on the Academy tab up top. At the moment, um, you have to apply for the Academy. You can't just come in. Uh, it's still just Tom and I, and we have fairly limited spots because we really like to give the utmost attention to everyone who's uh, in the program. But basically, you can apply. Um, if we like your application, we'll also give you a free lesson. So you can... Uh, that's a free Zoom call with myself or Tom. So you can actually um, see what online coaching with us is like, see if it's right for you. Um, and then, of course, it gives us an opportunity to meet you and, and see if, you know, you'd be a good fit for the program as well. So um, please apply. Um, and, yeah, you know, we, we look to, forward to, hope to hope coaching you. Yeah. And that goes yeah. well into the, the final thing I'll say, that, you know, when winter hits in the Northern Hemisphere, December, we will be running the Academy again, which was a big success last season. So people that want to spend half a season to a full season, getting consistent coaching, being able to send video any time of day and get a short, concise bit of feedback from Samurai instantly that you can apply and videos supporting it, weekly Zoom classes to build the fundamental understanding mm -hmm. and dry land exercise. We begin that in December. So you can apply now for that too because it'll uh, it, it'll fill up pretty quick. I know there's a lot of people coming back, and uh, yeah. yeah, but we look forward to to the keen people that are there that want to do it for the winter. We don't believe sort of as much in just the one on one 
you know, just one-off stuff. It's like, no, you need more time, consistency to work on things. Uh, yeah, we welcome you to join. Yep. Yeah, we're anyway, excited. We're even, uh, I was just going to say, Tom, like we even have some guys now who are doing uh, the, the annual, so they're doing body prep into the ski season that they're doing all year round. So if you're somebody who loves skiing and you want to really improve all year round, there's, there's that option now. That's a new one. Um, Anyway, that's a hell of an intro from us. So Tom, let's get into the podcast. Johnny, Paul, thanks for coming on the big picture skiing podcast. Hey Johnny, I've, I've never met you. This is the first time. Uh, All I know is you were the former coach of the Norwegian Alpine team. How did you end up? in that position Ooh, that was a pretty circuitous route i grew up as a ski racer in canada um and i was never that good but i loved it and i wanted more than anything to be a ski racer um and then when i was about 20 years old i kind of had to decide do i want to go to college and keep racing and maybe at that time, it was the feeling of foregoing my World Cup dreams or keep grinding it out in Canada. And so actually, thanks to Paul, I got a scholarship to the University of Vermont and um, I raced there for three years. And then I did uh, one year in Europe. And then at that time, I was 25 and I never really planned on coaching. I thought, I'm just going to keep racing, keep racing. I'll be so old. I'll need to move into the real world. Um, and then, so at 25, after racing in Europe for a year and not doing what I expected, I just kind of realized, okay, it's, it's time to move on. Uh, I think I can't get any more money from my parents to keep this dream alive and I need to do something else. And then luckily I was offered a job. I just finished a bachelor's of psychology, offered a job to be the assistant coach at UVM. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. I can... I can coach for two years, which I'd still love skiing and then do my MBA and forego the real world for two more years. And then I just started, I loved coaching. Um, it gave me the same feelings I had as a racer, except for with 10 athletes, there's a lot more chance of having a good day <clears throat> than as myself as a racer. Um, and there I, I didn't really know or have much of a philosophy on coaching. I just tried to set up the program I wanted as a college athlete. Um, And I thought that, I mean, Paul and I had long discussions over years about how college skiing could be so much better. So I just tried to implement that. And I would originally planned to be two years while I did grad school, went three years and four years, and then we were developing a really good team. And I, I wanted to, okay, I want to win an NCAA championship with Vermont, which we hadn't done in a long time. And then I'm going to be done coaching. And so in 2012, we won the national championship. And then I got offered a job by Kip Harrington to work with the Canadian World Cup men's tech team. And I thought, wow, this is going to be an awesome two year. I'll just do it two years, go through the Olympics, and then I'll move on. So uh, two years into that, um, just before Christmas, Alpine Canada had a huge budget problems. Uh, and then myself and one of the other coaches uh, got let go five days before Christmas. And I thought, this is crazy. At that time, I was working with the development team and we had eight athletes and two coaches. And we were already like unable to do 
enough for the guys. And to have one coach do it, I thought it was impossible doing four events. So I said, okay, I'll keep your severance money. I'll work through World Juniors. And then just at that time, I got a call to coach a PG or a postgraduate college team or high school team here in Norway. So I thought, I love Scandinavia. Why don't I do that for one year? That's a great life experience. So I came for one year, um, decided to do another year while doing some finance work in Norway. And then I was offered a job with the Europa Cup team again. I thought, okay, I'll do this for two years. This will be fun. It'll be a new experience. And then ended up with the Europa Cup guys for three years. And then at that third year, half of our group, so we had four athletes move up to the World Cup team. And I thought, oh, this is a great experience. I'll do this for a couple of years. And then, so here we are. I was three years with the World Cup tech team. And then just this last season, I thought, okay, if I am going to step away ever, I better do it now after the Olympics because it's never going to be a ideal time. So it, it was never really a planned trajectory or my goal is to move here. It was just kind of things fell into place and seemed right. Um, yeah, so long story. Paul, why do you think, because you, you know Johnny for a long time, what do you think are some attributes that helped him you know, why, why did he go on that path and end up being in that position? What you from your, your opinion? Oh, I mean, I've always said for the longest time that Johnny's the best coach I know. And I think he thinks I'm always bullshitting him, but <laughs> I, I do, I do believe it. But I think, um, I think Johnny's a bit similar to the way that I got into coaching. It was a bit unexpected, unplanned, untrained for in terms of, like uh, we don't really come from coaches education kind of thing. Um, it was just more of a passion for, for the sport, passion to give athletes something that um, we didn't have or um, put the athletes in a, in a position or an environment that we felt that we weren't um, able to be part of or something like that. Basically the best that we could come up with. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's a, a few things I think with Johnny that makes him the coach that he is, was, um, is that passion to give athletes what he would want if he was in that position and constantly keeping that in mind, um, instead of just simply focusing on, um, sort of like just a, a technical side where you're just simply trying to like change technical movements. Cause there's so much more to developing a ski racer than just, making some technical movements, you know, the, the environmental side, the mental side, the emotional side, all that's really important. And Johnny is very dedicated to his athletes. Uh, he's very emotionally tied to his athletes. Um, you know, Johnny and I kind of, it's not, we don't really joke about it cause it's kind of true. I mean, I don't know how many times I've written Johnny after I've had countless bad results with my guys and been like, man, I'm terrible at this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just don't think this is for me. And then Johnny always, you know, gives me the, you know, the best friend advice, you know, like, ah, don't worry, you're a good coach. And I'm like, yeah, like when you come in last and your mom says you had a good race, you know, <laughs> Johnny, but then Johnny would have a bad race, right. Or with his guys. And uh, he would write the same thing to me. I'm terrible at this. I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and so, um, you know, something Johnny always said to me, which is true. And 
it's even more true for Johnny is that even when there are these bad results, like, you know, you're doing an extremely good job. You're always passionate. And, and the reason that you're upset that things are not going well is because you care so much and because you're so passionate. And that's, I think what Johnny brings so much to the whole team environment to all his athletes. And I think that's why he has such a, a good connection and such a, a high success rate. Um, you know, and, and that's one thing that I, I sort of judge with Johnny over the years is that, you know, he, brought so many of his athletes that are on the world cup now up through the ranks. So it's not like he just came to the Norwegian team and started coaching Henrik. And it's like, yeah, I'm a successful coach. You know, it, it wasn't that mm. way. It was a development process. And, and that's how, for me, I judge whether a coach is someone who is successful or has talent and making changes. If you see them actually develop an athlete, change an athlete. And Johnny has done that time after time, but I think his, his passion and his, uh, his, drive to keep a, a really good team environment and a, a tight bond between everyone. Um, I think that makes Johnny a extremely good coach. Mm. Thanks, Paulie. But I think just to touch on some things Paul said there, um, also for me, looking from the outside at coaches or groups, I think everyone that I really respect in the, in the ski world, it's like, it's their passion for the sport and the really putting athletes for uh, like prioritizing the athletes and each individual mm. athlete. And, you know, you see a lot of people coaching a superstar, but like, how does, is the group really improving? That's also kind of a barometer I use. And that can be going from 80 points to 60 on the whole group is improving a lot. It doesn't mean you're winning, you're coaching at a world champion. Um, so I think that's yeah. important. And when you're coaching to keep that in like, keep the passion for the sport and really prioritizing the athletes. And if you do that, you'll be successful and you'll move up the ranks and you'll be seen instead of having mm. this, I want to be a world cup coach or I want to be this and putting yourself first, like that gets seen through pretty quickly. Yeah. So Johnny, uh, who are some of the athletes in Norway that you've coached from Europe cup team uh, that are now in the world cup? So I had, um, I was the longest with uh, Fabian Solheim and Timon Haugen I had for six, seven years. And then I had Adle Limagrath and Lucas Broughton from Europa Cup to World Cup. And with them, I mean, I was also super lucky getting crazy talented 18-year-olds uh, coming in. So it's, that's not something that... I helped them along their journey, but they they had a really good foundation and good work from a young age and like their understanding and knowledge about skiing and um, plan of what they wanted to do, even from 18 years old, was better than most World Cup 30 or plus year olds that had had medals. Like it was really impressive. Could you go into into that like specifically like what? you know because you obviously yeah. seen people yeah what what is that sort of so I, I think that? um a lot of and I saw this as an athlete a lot of coaches who are can be very successful make the athlete really reliant on them personally and the whatever they're telling you this tip or that tip and I think it's so important for athletes to have an understanding and an ownership over their own skiing. So I'll try to probably annoyingly. So like, what do you think of that run? How did that feel? 
why? And asking all these probing questions so that the athletes really become their own best coaches. They have to know the principles of how things work together. And normally, if you're having problem, say, with the entrance of the turn, it's got very little to do with what you're doing at the entrance of the turn. It's so much related to the release and the exit of the turn before. And for them to understand the principles and, um, and to feel it. And I think that's what say Lucas and having a clear vision of what they want to do. And that's what Lucas and Adelaide were both from a very young age, very, very good at. Yeah. And then okay, you can cool. have discussions yeah, instead of just do this, do this, do this, do this, do that. And I myself find myself doing it too often, just telling them what to do. But I think that's really important. Cool. Yeah. Um, Johnny, so just to get some context. So um, I remember Lucas Broughton, I mean, all those guys, like insane talents, right? Um, I guess like Lucas really punched that home when he won in Solden. Hmm. when he was 20 years old. Um, but, but you worked with those guys from when they were around 18 years old, right? Can yeah. you give us some context of like, like what, uh, like where were they in terms of like level when they were 18? And what was that progression? If you could even name some maybe key moments to, to like, you know, Lucas winning a, a World Cup, but also those, the other guys getting in the top 30. Yeah, I mean, I think Lucas actually was the the classic um, wonder child. So he was really good at 14, 15 years old. And then his first year fist, which you see with so many of these kids that are child stars, um, a lot of the other guys started catching up and beating him. So I think when his first year fist, he was like sixth or something. I don't want to get it wrong, but he wasn't the top Norwegian. And that's at a place where you see most of the child stars uh, kind of lose interest. They're used to winning everything. And then it's inevitable that people will catch up. And then he has this hunger within. So his second year fist, he switched programs and he had uh, Ula Mazdal as a coach, who was a coach for him when he was a younger athlete. And then again on the World Cup team in Norway. And he did the ski switch and just kind of refocus his efforts. And so he took a big step at 17, uh, 17 and 18. And then, so he actually wasn't on the Europa cup team at the, in the summer, but he got invited in October to some training and was doing really well. And I think the first GS, he was on the podium in Europa cup, which is unheard of coming into your first Europa cup being on the podium. And he won, almost all the GSs that year in Europa Cup. And you that that, time, remember, Johnny, we were training up in Sweden. And I uh, never even heard of Lucas. And, yeah, there was basically this random kid training with you guys, and he was coming down, and you're like, uh, he's going to podium this week. I was like, come on. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, never even heard of this kid. But he's like, he's going to podium. I was like, all right, all right. And... Sure as hell, he, he got on the podium and then, yeah, won just about every GS Europa Cup that season. Yeah. And then for him, it's like he has a lot of speed. And at that time, he was, um, he had really stiff skis and he would ski kind of skip a bit of the entrance of the turn, have a really stiff, strong leg, and then generate so much power. 
And then as we got into the spring and we had salted and worse conditions, it, it just wasn't working that way of skiing and that you have to be able to adapt and be a little bit more uh, kind of having a wider platform on, on your, the base. And, and then he really worked on just simplifying it. I mean, the philosophy for me and for the team was to achieve excellence, do the basics at the highest standard consistently. And that was really ingrained. And that's something that he also really bought into. Uh, and you can see, especially this year, I mean, in the previous two years, I think he had finished four slalom races or three years. He'd finished three, four slalom races, two world cups. And then one of them, we won the first run. And then he was really this year, like, I'm just going to take it down a notch and be really consistent. And then you see, I mean, he had the red bib, for a lot of the season and it went down to the wire in the final race. Um, so he's mm. just very, very process oriented and um, he sticks to it. And I think that's, that's really important because he had the speed he had like from a young age, you could tell this guy has something special and you could see him in a race where he can like step it up and really attack when most people are backing off. So, so I guess, you know, you, Paul, and you mentioned that your experience trying to be ski racers was a big driver to how you wanted to coach people now. Johnny, what were some of the things you wished you'd had back when you were 20 that you now sort of really implement? I know we talked about the, you know, Paul's like Johnny is there for, the, for each individual athlete, not just technically. What did you feel you were missing? Um, <clears throat> I think for me, it was a lot my own understanding of the sport beyond my narrow in the moment. And I think that I see myself in a lot of the athletes where I, I, I beat myself up a lot. I worried about what other people thought way too much. And I didn't really understand how everything is connected together. And I didn't have a big enough picture on my ski racing and an understanding within myself. I was very reliant on other people and I had some great coaches coming up, but I always made myself reliant on them. And that's why like going to college, it was such a shock where it was just a very different environment. And then like Paul was super, he was coaching me a lot of the time and then make, I kind of started to understand things in a different way. And I think it's, it's difficult as an athlete um, you're so myopic and like only worried about yourself and to see it kind of take a step back uh, can be very helpful. And like, yeah. I'll try to get, I'll try to get the guys to do that. Um, like we'll come do video and we'll be like, okay, I'm going to bring a uh, life in that land to watch video together. You tell the other guy what you're working on, you watch video and then it kind of brings you out of your own bubble. And you have to think about things differently to be able to explain it to your teammate. I like that. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Because we, we, Sam and I recently spoke to a young guy, Jack Adams, who's on the New Zealand team. And he said he wished as a junior athlete, he'd just been taught some more fundamental things, not just get forward and stand on your outside ski, but, but like the, particularly the, the line. So really taking mm. the skis away, 
further. And he said, if I'd just been told that when I was a lot younger, I wouldn't have, yeah, I could have been practicing that as I'm 15, 16, 17, 18, instead of like at 18, realizing that for the first time. So is that part, like sort of partly that? And I guess that's then a the big thing. I mean, that's yeah. for me, the one thing that, um, that kind of rings true is that for me, you know, you're always like working on the top of the turn. And I think I was in my early twenties before I really clicked that I have to finish the turn before and go far enough across before I start my turn where I'm getting off the ski way too early to try to get on the new one. So then I'm just sliding in and sliding out of the turn. And it's like, it's something simple. And the coaches probably thought I understood it, but I, I didn't. And so I think that's also important is like, you can say the best things to the athlete, but they have to understand it and to kind of challenge them and try to really, where are they at? Because athletes will not. And yeah, I agree. Because you don't want to feel stupid. I think a a key part of with coaching is, I mean, there's so many times where, I mean, um, it was, I think when Daniela Sete was on my team and Sete could speak perfect English, you know, I mean, for a Swiss guy, you know, he spoke Italian and German and, and English. I'm pretty sure it was Sete or it was Barofaldi, my, one of my Italians. I can't remember, but it was like December and all of a sudden he asked him, he's like, yeah, what, what does Paul keep talking about with like the independent move, you know, like in the transition and it's December, you know, mm-hmm. we started working in May together, you know, instead of like asking, you know, I don't quite understand this, you know, they, they, like John said, they don't want to feel stupid or they don't, yeah, don't understand something. Or, or they can't cool. create their own uh, version of what that is that it can be totally different of, than what you have in mind. So it's right. so, that communication is so important. Yeah, and a lot mm. of times I'll ask the athlete to like kind of explain mm. what I'm talking about in their own words and not just, you know, regurgitate what I just said to them. So that way I know they understand it in their own language, you know, because there's a lot of times, uh, you know, I think a good example for me is with Sam Mays on my team. He will understand something I'm saying, but he words it almost the exact opposite of how I say it to the point where it doesn't even really make sense to what I'm explaining. Like the wordage is so different that you wouldn't think that's what it is, but it doesn't matter. As long as I know how he understands it and he understands what I'm saying, then that's all that matters. And so I think, you know, that, that uh, communication is extremely important. You know, that's something that Johnny's always talked a lot about over the years is the communication between the athlete and the coach and, and having just a mutual understanding of what you're trying to accomplish and, and just more so than, yeah, get forward or get over the outside ski, you know, just sort of the whole process of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, you're talking about with Jack Adams and, and I think, you know, when you asked Johnny sort of what he felt he was missing when he was growing up or whatever, I think a lot of it is that um, as athletes, like Johnny said, you don't see the bigger picture Mm. always, you know, you you see just a very narrow focus. Like I need to make that turn better. Just this one little turn right now. And I see it one turn out of 20 and now I'm happy about it, you know, instead of sort of understanding the whole process of it and understanding the whole big picture, not getting too focused on, on having like one good turn or just one bad turn to ruin everything, 
or one good turn the entire course makes your your run really good when 99% of it wasn't good you know and you got to focus on the bigger picture the consistency and and consistency wins races and you know if you look at mm. how Lucas said he was taking a step back this season to be more consistent and he ends up you know crushing like he did in Vengen second run I mean and that was just very basic consistency that was just a good course set Paul yeah Donnie's course set <laughs> but, but I mean really if you watch Lucas and Vengen I mean he was he was running was he running first or second second what's that Second. So, so Johnny, Johnny, that was your course set. Yep. Yeah. On the second on the van. Yeah. Oh, that is rad. But wow. yeah, that was watching cool. going, you know, you watch him running second, you look at it and you're like, that was probably solid. Like maybe he'll move up to top 15. You know, it's very hard to judge. And then as other guys are coming down and struggling and going way <laughs> straighter than he was going, you know, he was just giving himself a lot more line and being consistent the whole way where some guys were cutting off the line through uh, the hairpins and losing so much ground speed where Lucas was just yeah. consistent, 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 you know, that's sort of like seeing a bigger picture as an athlete and understanding mm. that consistency can win races. And I think when we're younger, we're not really taught this kind of stuff. And I think that's yeah. a setback that we have. Well, I say we, I mean, Johnny can talk about Canada. I can talk about the U S you know, Johnny can talk a bit more about Norway and stuff in terms of development, but you know, I think when we're younger, um, you know, you, you miss a lot of that bigger picture thinking of what's really important and not just one single, mm. movement, but the whole process of it. If you're serious about stepping up your skiing skills, listen up. I've been working closely with the Carve team for over four years and they've just unveiled a groundbreaking feature, Active Coaching Mode. And here's the lowdown. Launch it at the top of your run and go through a quick calibration with 10 turns, and it sets a baseline just below your current skill level. From there, every turn is a challenge, adapting on the fly to your skill, terrain, and conditions. No fluff, just a gamified experience pushing you to ski better every turn. It does this by using a super thin insole lined with small pressure sensors and motion detectors. It's like having a personal coach analyzing your every move. And here's the sweet part. If you hit a hot streak with excellent form and you're in for double or triple points, it's addictive, rewarding. Like I said, it's a very gamified experience and it transforms every run into a step towards better skiing. If you're intrigued, and you should be, check out Carve and dive into active coaching mode. Just Google Get Carve to find out more and as a bonus, enter code GELLY15 to take 15% off. It's amazing. I've heard from the Carve team that now nearly over a third of the users are using active coaching mode when they go out and ski with it. So why not give it a try yourself? Yeah. So, so a couple of things, um, for everyone listening, if you don't know what we're talking about, go and search Lucas Bratton banging on YouTube right now. Um, I had a, I had this ex exact experience you're ex describing cause I didn't watch that race live and I went back and watched it and I heard, well, you know, Lucas Brighton won from, uh, you know, star position two, which means he was like 29th in the first run, right? Just describing for everyone listening. And I was like, wow, so I'm going to watch this run and it's going to be like the craziest run I've ever seen, right? This is going to be insane because also the condition, it wasn't like if the course was completely falling apart. I remember, you know, we've seen it before where people win from bib one, bib two on the second run, um, and, and the course is falling apart. So eventually like they end up winning because, you know, no one, like people are skiing these crazy ruts. 
And when I watched it, I was like, I was like, that didn't seem that good. It just seemed really, really solid. And then everybody's <laughs> coming down and no one could, could get ahead of him. Um, so yeah, really, really cool to, to hear you guys describe that. And I, I had that experience just watching it because I expected to see something absolutely like mind blowing. And in a way, on the edge. Just, yeah, in a way, it was like, just exactly yeah. what needed to be done. It wasn't anything absolutely crazy. Pretty amazing performance. Um, Johnny, what you were saying before about getting athletes to coach each other as well. Uh, is that something you did often? Yeah, fairly often, more, more in the preseason. Um, Mm. But for sure, and then like if say Sonder Olson, uh, Stan Olson was struggling a bit this winter. He was the he's the next big star, and so he came from Europa Cup wins into the World Cup team. And then it's a it's heavy on an athlete when you're starting at the back, and it's January slalom month, and it's like you feel like you're getting beat down, beat down, beat down. And um, I'd been talking to him about something like just that in the transition. This is that I always want their bodies in the direction of the skis. And a lot of people mm. in slalom always body down the hill. And if your body's always down the hill, you can never be really on your ski in the entrance of the turn. So this was a bit new to him. And then I remember Lucas was just in the next room. I'm like, Lucas, come in. And then he talked to Sander for half an hour. And it's like, I could be trying to tell him exactly similar thing as Lucas, but then just by Lucas being the athlete explaining it in the way that he's feeling it, something really clicked for Sander. Mm. So I think it's, it's so important um, that they talk to each other. And this for us, I mean, I think one of the benefits of the Norwegian team and the attacking Vikings is that they work really well together and they're in a way forced to do that. Like with the Europa cup team, I was alone with eight athletes. I can't, see all of course i mean this is something paul experiences too a lot but then they have to give themselves good recourse reports because i can only see one third of the course so they learn how important it is to be giving good reports to be talking to each other because the one coach can't do everything like a swiss team or an austrian they would have a bigger staff on europa cup than we have on our world cup team so then you can put pillows under their arms so it's a little bit that I try to encourage it. And it's also natural and kind of organic by having a smaller team. Huh. Do, yeah. do you want to maybe, do you want to maybe speak then about the, I don't know if you need to go back even earlier, that the differences then you see between say, cause your experience with Canada and then Norway and possibly how that leads to, you know, is a contributing factor to, to Norway having such a successful team. Yeah, I think the, I mean, the, the big thing I saw coming from, I mean, I was in the U.S. for nine years and in Canada for two. Uh, and I'd worked with some, mainly I've worked with older athletes, but done some camps here and there with younger ones. And I, I really found in North America at that time, it felt like the, the cool thing was to be really fast and really lazy. That's what the young teenagers like, I'm Mr. Cool Guy. Oh, I don't want to work hard in dryland. And immediately what struck me in Norway is the cool thing was being in the best shape. And they do this old school dryland test, which 
it's not the most uh, scientific or totally <clears throat> ski specific, but you get a score and then they get t-shirts with their number. And if you have a high number t-shirt, that's the coolest thing. So just this culture of, mm. or the guys with the kids at like high school would track how many runs they did, how many gate passages they had. And that was the coolest thing was doing more. So to me, that was really different coming over. And I also see these kids where, I mean, for me growing up, the biggest goal was making the Canadian ski team. My biggest goal wasn't being world champion. It was being on the Canadian team. And I saw that too, being on the, U being on the U.S. team. And the kids here, their goal is to be the best in the world. <laughs> and it's, mm. it's seemingly attainable. I mean, in Oslo, we have, I don't know how many, six World Cup winners from last year in a city of under a million people. Uh, so you see that it's possible. And, and for me growing up, no one had made the Canadian team from my city of the same Ottawa, the same size as Oslo in 20 years, 10 years. So you see that it's possible. I can do that. Um, and it's like probably breaking the four minute mile. Like when you see it's possible, then everyone does it or. Yeah. So you see that it is possible and working hard is the cool thing. And of course there's some, we have a lot of, uh, opportunities here. I mean, you have a city where there's ski hills, five hills within 15 minutes. So the kids ski every day after school in the winter. We have night skiing, we ski every day. And we have close access to glaciers almost all year round. So they're able to do a lot of skiing. And that's another big thing that it's, it's difficult mm. in a lot of other places to get as much skiing. Cool. Mm. That's, yeah, that, that's that, a that funny makes thing, sense. right? Because that that last my experience in racing is the last point you brought up, Johnny, about um, people doing a lot of skiing seems to be like the only like a like a huge part of what people that don't get to do as much skiing focus on. Not they don't focus as much on the in Norway. It's cool to be fit. It's cool to do as many runs as possible. Stuff like mm -hmm. that. They like leave that aside and. When, like as an Aussie racer, I always just used to think I'm like, well, in that case, us Kiwis and Aussies should be like the best in the world, right? Because like we ski the entire goddamn year. Um, so no, really cool to get some insights there. I I I kind of resonated with what you said with the your athletes coaching each other because I remember having an experience of. Uh, do, like when I was a racer going and doing an APSI exam and doing like my instructor levels and, you know, as racers, and I think even race coaching, there's like a bit of a, a culture of like shitting on the instructors, you know, like they're not at the highest performance. And sometimes like I see this, you know, you see instructors that are like really trying to say, get their level four. And in a way, like I understand, like they're still so far below like the performance of an Alpine world cup guy. And I went in, I remember thinking like, you know, I did it because my dad's an instructor. I went, I went in thinking, you know, what could I really learn here from doing snowplows with Tom Gelly? Because I did, <laughs> I think Tom, I think Tom was my examiner on my level one, and I became a way better skier, uh, ski racer after doing those because I just, I actually did start to understand skiing like on a different level, um, or like a, like on a, on more minute details. So, 
Um, do a lot of snow plows cool. with the World Cup guys. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And I think that that's yeah, like yeah. really important is doing basic drills and movements on the. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll do good warm up with a lot of drills and then they'll ski. And once they're too tired to keep training, like go do two cooldown runs, it's going to cost you no energy and do some drills. And I had, mm. uh, when I was coaching at UVM, I would do in the summers, I'd work at Treble Cone Race Academy. And there yeah. we had a guy, Steve Smart, uh, Canadian high-level uh, ski instructor. He, he was my a lot uh, from him. Yeah, he was a trainer of mine. Okay, mm. yeah, he's yeah. a great guy. So and you and I would use him, and I think like to use a great ski instructor is so good. And I mean, uh, Costa that used to go around, and he would be training, and then he would work with some ski instructor in the afternoon, and to learn. I mean, those basics—they're really good at teaching, and the basic things are so important mm. johnny um on that when it comes to doing drills doing cool down runs and so on um what is uh a typical day from the moment they get on snow for a for a norwegian alpine guy you know how many runs of drills and like warm-up they're going to do how many runs do they usually do in the course i remember being at Hinterite training next to Christofferson. And I was just like, did that guy just do like 14 runs? You know, mm. they were just, they just kept going. And like the Norwegians were famous for that, at least at the time. Um, and then, yeah, how many cool round runs would you do? Like if, if I was a, a younger racer and I was like, okay, I want to train like a Norwegian or follow a Norwegian schedule, what would that look like? <laughs> I mean, it's going to vary um, in the time of the season and also with the age of the athlete. So, I mean, with uh, the gymnasium and Europa Cup level, like there we tried to ski as much as possible. I mean, I did some, I did a day of GS training with Henrik Rua where I did 20 runs of full length GS and you have to be like, stop, stop. Um, so it, it does vary and you have to like what they can take. And I would do almost as much as they can handle over time. Uh, whereas with the world cup team, I mean, it's more, it's pretty similar to other nations. You'll do maybe two warm up runs, six runs in the season, and then over one of cool down. So it's not, I don't think we're very at the world cup level. So extreme because you need to get enough rest and enough variation of days and you can't, they can't do it the same way they did when they were younger. Mm-hmm. And I think we, I always try to have like a, my goal is always to make this athlete the best in the world one day and, and awesome. to balance that short-term race coming up this weekend, not to go off on a tangent, but versus the long-term development. And then like when Lucas won is the first run in Kitzbühel, we did that week, we were in Hinterite, we did two days of Super G or two days of GS, one day of Super G and two days of Slalom. And it's just like, this is a window where we're at Hinterite. We can do everything so easily that we have to do these things that we're not racing in the short term because it's going to help you over time. And I think mm-hmm. to make those decisions is really important as a coach when there's always so much pressure from servicemen, from the athletes. I got this race coming up and to take a step back and there's a reason we're going to do this. And I think it's also good for the athletes to get the variation. Like if you're racing slalom and you do GS that week, 
it's less stressful. They can focus on the skiing and not be so worried about everything else and be working on the same type of movement patterns in a different environment. Uh, Paul, do you follow a similar philosophy with your guys? When you, I know you like more GS focused, but um, you know, even even like the day to day, you know, depending on time of year, like what they're doing day to day and so on. Yeah, I mean, definitely in the preseason, summer, you know, from you know, if you start skiing in July for the first time, and then I would say until maybe beginning of October, so you have a couple of weeks before Solden, we're I'm trying to get the guys sort of as ski fit as possible. So, um, I mean, I have guys on my team that are 22. I mean, it's not much different than Johnny. My, my, my age range from 22 to 30. Um, so, yeah, sometimes guys are able to pump out more runs than others, but I definitely try to put in the ski miles, especially in the summer, as much as possible. And, um, you know, in Sasfe, for example, it's good because you're at high elevation, so you can kind of get ski fit a bit quicker. Um, and so after training, a lot of times, uh, if the guys are done sooner than some other guys, they'll be going out and doing some of the, the drill routines that we have. We're just doing free ski runs, working on some stuff, do anywhere between four or five runs after the course with that. Um, and then, I mean, there's also times uh, we could do 14 runs in the course or so 12, 14 runs. And then afterwards, uh, you know, sometimes I go through the course slowly with the guys, just working on a couple gate sections on just some key movements. If I felt that they're not, we spent a whole day and they're still not quite, you know, nailing the timing or the placement of where I want them pushing on the ski, you know, we'll slow it down and we'll kind of slide down the course and we'll do sort of sliding, sliding turns through the course just so they can know at what point they should be making a certain movement and then, you know, where they should be traveling out, um, stuff like that. So, the summertime is definitely about really trying to nail down the basics, get in as many miles as possible. And then, yeah, once October comes along, you need to start to kind of tone it down a bit where you're looking at more um, efficiency um, in training in terms of like, okay, if we're training, if, if we're able to be on the Solden World Cup Hill or something like that, and it's, you know, going to be a minute 15 you know, you're not going to be pumping out seven, eight runs, you know, maybe you're doing four runs, something like that. Um, and so at that point, you're going to want that those four runs, those guys are skiing as consistent as possible and sort of nailing all the stuff that you've been working on through the summer. Um, and then kind of November, you get a bit of a break. Um, there's one parallel, but otherwise there's not really any racing going on. So that's another point where you can kind of um, maybe pump up the runs a little bit more, but during the season, it's sort of the guys have to go off the feeling how they're feeling. You know, I'm not going to demand that they're taking 10, 12 runs if they're feeling really tired after four runs, you know, um, you know, so like Johnny said, it might be okay. You're doing four runs where you feel like you can only do four runs afterwards, take a couple free ski runs, work on some stuff and then yeah, chill out. So it's, it's all a little bit different and you're, uh, mm. time different. Hey Johnny, you mentioned the uh, <clears throat> I can't remember the guy's name, but he, he was down the hill instead of being a little more square with his skis, and you got Lucas in to sort of explain that to him. 
can I ask a little more about that? Why, why do you think it's still very much like coached and taught to really like that dogma about down the hill of the upper body? Um, yeah. Do you think there's a place for it? Do you, do you think, you know, it's something you have to go through and then you can get towards being squarer? Like, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Cause I, you know, there's a lot of instructors that listen to this. And, you know, a lot of the time they'll get, they'll give themselves a hard time because they see video like, oh, my God, my body's rotated this way and I, I, my exam is supposed to be down here. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, as I said, I haven't really coached young kids. And I think it's probably a lot taught because, you know, the kids end up rotating and moving away from their ski. And that at least if it body's down the hill, you're going to be in a good position at the apex and below um some people believe that you don't have time in slalom to actually follow your skis in the transition or and i think it's also it can be dangerous to be picking apart video of world cup races because world cup races are there's a lot of reacting to extreme conditions and so you can easily pick up two turns on a world cup where someone's like reacting to a mistake and then seize on that. So in my opinion, that you always, you have to have enough separation at the apex, but then as you're releasing the turn, you need to be moving towards being square so you can be aligned in the next entrance. And I think to look at skiing, like you, you always wanna be as skeletally aligned and efficient as possible. And people will also say like, this is just the way they ski or that's their technique. And I said, but I agree with that, but everyone can be more efficient no matter how you ski. You can always be more efficient and we should always be striving to making them more efficient so that their just their skeletal system is good enough. You don't need to be the strongest man in the world. And I mean, I think also with sometimes with young kids or teenagers that when they're too strong, you get away with uh, bad habits. Like I can, mm-hmm. uh, for Polly, Hunter Kalsis was so strong, the guy we skied with in college, and he could ski the whole course with his ass like two inches off his bindings. Where if I got in that position, I would just blow out. So like there is something we said for that you have to be able to ski efficiently. Yeah. Think, and is that, what's, you got sorry. it. Um, just to clarify, because I can already see people listening to this podcast and then finding some still frames of racers at the gate where they're like countered or their body is down the hill. Okay. What there's a difference. It's Johnny's talking about basically sort of at the very end of the turn transition, sort of your shoulders, ski should kind of be in the same line, but when you're at the gate, you're going to have that separation. You know, like if you take a still shot when someone's hitting the gate, you're not going to be, your shoulders aren't going to be following the same direction of the skis, you know? And I think that's a misunderstanding, you know, that people could have is that that's going to be a rotation. If you're already at the gate starting to go this way, where your shoulders are pointing towards the skis, that's different than when you're in the transition starting to flatten up and you're following the skis instead of the skis going this way and your, your body's going that way. Cause then when you enter the turn, you're going to be like this. And, um, 
so I think it's a clarification because I can see, see people still framing a shot and being like, well, this guy's countered or his body's facing down the hill. It's a, a difference between what part of, mm. part of the turn. Or Johnny? Yeah. Yeah, yeah like I would, I would agree. I think, uh, I think basically you want your like ankles, knees, hips square to the skis. And your separation is going to come through your upper thoracic spine. Yeah. Um, like sternum and up to be able to, and uh, you see a lot of people having separation from the hip and misaligning everything. Um, so I think that's a key point that it's, it's only the separation is only coming from kind of sternum up to help you keep the weight on the outer side ski. And, and that it's going to, that separation will increase as the impulse and the pressure increases through the turn to be able to maintain it, the pressure on the outside ski. And as that's in, you know, if it's soft snow and a longer turn, you're going to have to hold that longer to get the skis to come around versus like, if you're in Colorado and it's super aggressive snow, you can be more square through the turn because you get so much from the skis. Yeah. That's interesting. Your point about the, 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 the separation up here, because if you do that, then you can you can align your pelvis and legs, that stronger part in, in, right. in a better way. Is that, is that right? That's the reason Correct. why. Yeah. Yeah. And then what would you say is your reasoning behind being square at the top of the turn, ankle, knee, you know, hip, all those things, instead of being not as so like, you know, maybe someone's like, oh, you need to be anticipated or, you, you know, whatever. Yeah, because then you're not lined up uh, um, over the outside ski. And you're going to have to be getting your impulse through putting the skis out or just moving them in, moving the whole body inside. I want everything to come from the ground and up. I want it to be ankle, knee, hip, shoulder. Yeah. Uh, cool. All the power comes from the ground. And I guess that's where, you where use... people think that they don't have time. You have time. Yes. Okay. Uh, and, and that's where you, you'd be like, okay, guys, snowplow time. Mm. because they've got time to like be aware of where their body is at these sort of phases. And yeah, exactly. Correct. Exactly. And I think if you see, like you can see a really, what looks like a great slalom, like super fast slalom skiing. And if it looks like pressure off, pressure off, pressure off to me, that's, that's not that great. I want it to look like it's always connected. One turn to the next, your feet always look heavy um versus like yeah you're hitting really quick getting light in the middle throwing the feet out hitting really quick and when it's rough and it's um steep you need to be as much as possible in control and of course this is another thing where you people pull apart a world cup race and look at people reacting and making moves versus if you saw them on a pretty normal terrain which we're watching most younger athletes on they're going to be connected. It's going to look simple. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's a good, good point. Even I was even just looking at some, uh, like the Lily hammock moguls finals and like the, the side on view and those guys, you know, there's no tips down. They're not touching the back of the mogul or like they're hammering. Mm. But if you put them in a situation where it's not like they, they would be trying to do it just like world cup skiers, you put them in a, in a course that they're, you know, comfortable on, they're going to be doing that. But when they're pushing it, those situational things come up, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So I think that's mm-hmm. really dangerous. And you see people pulling apart this extreme World Cup race and then often copying the mistakes that that athlete might be working on getting out of their skiing is what the younger athletes uh, are only copying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's definitely, interesting. definitely a bit dangerous to pull apart, you know, especially like the last quarter of a World Cup course, say in a GS or something, if you're like, what was uh, Adelboden this year? I mean, it was a pretty, <laughs> that was like the most tiring GS, I think, other than Salbach four years ago where it was like a minute 28, but this year Adelboden was crazy. I mean, guys. Where were you standing, Paul? Uh, yeah, by the slalom start. Okay. Because I was at the next flat before the big pitch and, and they were like falling over when they were getting yeah. to me. And they were but, still 15 like seconds to go. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, it's, you it's, the guys go out on the bottom just because they, their legs couldn't hold them up anymore. Yeah. And so guy, if you're going to then, you know, someone can watch the bottom pitch of, of Adelboden and been like, Oh, this guy was rotating. This guy was complete separation. <laughs> this guy was like just throwing yeah. his feet out there. You're like, yeah. Cause he was trying to survive. You know, yeah. it's, it's completely different. Yeah. It's like watch the top half where in Adelboden, you can just hammer, you know, the top mm. half through the, through the flat is like, for the most part, turn your brain off and just arc everything and hammer. But with the snow conditions and core sets now where they're trying to control speed, you know, things are, the core sets are a lot longer. The guys are getting a lot more tired, you know, and yeah, you're going to see a lot more uh, just stuff that's not, you don't want to be copying it, you know, because it's just a different yeah. situation. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, Paul, why, why was that run so tiring and so much, so long? Well, you know, FIS has this whole thing now where they're trying to minimize injuries and they're trying to figure out all summer they meet with specialists on why these injuries are happening and this and that. And so, you know, they look at, at skis and snow conditions and, and core sets. And so one thing they were trying to do in GS is, uh, you know, make things turnier. So the, right. the speed is down. But what you have on the other hand his guys are now dead for the last 15 seconds of a GS course. And to mm. me, that's pretty damn dangerous. Especially in Adelboden, yeah. Yeah, Adelboden. Well, like last year at Adelboden, I mean, that was a tough race for me. We lost both Broughton Two and McGrath. Ago. Two years ago, we lost Broughton McGrath. Uh, Tommy Ford had a really bad accident. And Samuel yeah. Bissick hurt his knee. So I think, especially going there this year, they were pushing the first course setter on really controlling the speed and they went a, a bit far but a lot of right. it is also you in Adelbone, right they have like the third to last gate or fourth to last gate they have a a, a footpath that goes across you know and it's this yeah. huge kicker um and before that you know the bottom pitch of Adelbone is actually not that steep it's one gate where there's like a really steep drop off and then it goes into compression and mellows out but then it's like this going on and then a lot of times guys said it dead straight the last five gates and then you have that that road that's literally just a, a kicker like that's that the, the down, the down finish really really fast and um yeah so they were trying to control that um but this year is actually really mellow the footpath was barely <clears> there <throat> but you know the damage was already done on the first uh minute of the course with you know how much turnier it was and right. guys smoked i'd love to hear like what you guys think about this from 
you know, like uh, uh, these cycles that, that Fist kind of goes through. Because I, I don't know if it was last year, the year before, when Henrik put on his personal blog, Henrik Christofferson, like he was actually, uh, he, like he had a complaint that everything was just way too straight, way too fast and so on. I don't know, maybe that's, that was just in his head or something. It depends but, on if you're winning but, or losing. Yeah, that's when you're yeah, winning, like, everything's like, great. Yeah, when you're winning, like the courses are perfect, and if you're losing, or, or or I guess if you're supposed to be like the chosen person after Marcel retires, and then all of a sudden these these young guns start coming up and biting your ankles, maybe that was it. But but you know when he was complaining about, about it being so straight, I was like I was like, does this just go through cycles? It seems like every five years they go between. Okay, all right, like let's go dead straight. Let's let's start making a tourney. Oh, let's change the skis again. Um, I mean, what like what do you guys? I guess a good question to follow this up would be like, what would you do to make it safer and still be ski racing? Make every GS almost as icy as possible. Yeah, I think, control. I think the conditions is uh, the the biggest thing. Uh, just to make better and more consistent conditions the most dangerous to me is when they're varying or when it's super aggressive ice that is like the skis respond to so much and also when it breaks a bit then they're they're skipping and then catching Mm. yeah um and i think that no matter what they try to do with the equipment there's going to be ways to make it more aggressive and it's just going to cost the manufacturers a lot of money. Um, so I think the conditions of the course are the biggest thing. Um, and as far as the sets, like to me, I don't always like other people's sets, but I think it's great to have a huge variety. And I think that's what makes the crystal globe so cool to, to win that. It's like, then you have to done everything. You're doing super fast returning. Help me understand that because I, I have no idea how this works. Like you set Vangen. Like yep. does Paul ever get to set a World Cup course? Like who gets to set it? And what are you what are you allowed to do? And like what are your parameters? Um, yeah, um, like for, so it has to nothing. do with the combined World Cup points uh, the previous year. And I don't know exactly the formula. For the gender, so it'll, what's that? They take the top seven in the nation's cup, you know, and then they divide up the sets with that. And if there's uh, sets left over after they've been divided up, then they go down the list, you know, eight, nine, 10, and then they divide it with that. Mm. until It's all filled up. And the most you can have is I think four in a discipline. Um, And then in terms of when you're setting it, it's basically the, the, as long as it's within the FIS rules, but they, they can be there and say, hey, yeah, this is looking a bit straight. There's always someone from FIS with, with you or like, okay, move over a little bit here. There's better snow. Um, so, yeah. And it depends on how much you listen it? to the people from FIS is, I guess, I guess is okay. how it's will be. And like, second like run, I mean, you also have no time to set. You're setting okay. within like five minutes, you have to be done. So wow. that could oh. be also a factor on the safety. Yeah. And do you think it's a, is it an advantage for sure? You know, like you set for the Norwegian team on that run, like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've seen it work both ways. 
I mean, in that particular instance, uh, I knew Lucas was going really early um, and the conditions were in some places a bit soft. So I did some things that I knew suited him, like for him having offset hairpins on the pitch were good. And I knew that he could make really good big turns kind of coming into the, uh, coming into the first rollover. So I, I, it wasn't like, this is for Lucas, but I took into account what he was really good at doing. And I think a lot of times when you set a course for your athlete, it backfires. So I usually try to not do that. <laughs> I also think that's all in your head. <laughs> I mean, these guys are all good enough that they know what they're doing, regardless of what the course is. For sure, some yeah. stuff will suit them a bit better. You know, if you have your guy sitting in first place after first run, you're sitting second run, you're not going to set something you know that they're generally slow at, mm. you know, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's times that you've seen like an Austrian set a second run and they've had like yeah like five for six five for at world championships last yeah. year yeah he set this really strange was it a delay into a hairpin that was like very when the outside gate of the delay was like an extra gate and they probably trained that a thousand times and schwartz was in fourth or something first run and it skied out there mm. So I th- I've seen that happen all the time. I think normally when you set in a race, you just try to set with the, a good course with the terrain. And often it's different than what you had pictured in your head. I think regarding yeah. course conditions, um, I mean, if you look at how many injuries there are in a race season at races versus training, it's a lot different. I think in training, we basically almost always have better conditions than what you see at a World Cup. Um, because the coaches are preparing it. We have more experience than what is happening on the world cup because we water way more than fist does, you know, um, in a season. And, you know, like I said, I think especially in, in GS to limit the amount of injuries, make it very icy where the guys still have grip you make your skis. They can be sharp enough that you still have grip. But like Johnny said, the inconsistency, especially with, uh, the the grippiness, the aggressiveness of the snow where it might be a bit icy in one section and then you come to an area where it's way grippier and you don't realize and you put the same pressure on, then you're going to have a very bad reaction. But if you're able to make you know it pretty icy and still have grip the whole way, I mean, the guys have complete control. They can throw in a drift when they need to to be able to you know, speed control or energy control or do a recovery versus when it's gripping, you try to do that and you throw the skis out. It's like they're, they're wanting to grip, grip, grip while you're trying to drift into place and then you hit it and then it goes like that where you just don't have the feeling. On ice, you know, nice, slick, but with grip ice, you can do whatever you want. And then the guys are going to be able to, you know, hammer from start to finish because they have that that confidence in what, what they're getting. I mean, you look at world champs, the last world champs, GS, you had three or, you know, I would say three different conditions. The top pitch was perfect. Mm. That was like real ice, perfect grip. And then you came off the first pitch, you had that flat and then the next little breakover. And this was like pond ice. I mean, this was ridiculous. How many of the top guys in the top 15, the guys just skidded out, you know? And then the bottom was like spring snow. I mean, I had to do a bit with weather, but also, the you know the preparation of it wasn't 
wasn't correct. It was completely yeah. different. And the same yeah, with the GS was like the top. It, that was super weird there. But it was like it's once it snowed, it was like slick on the top. And then all of a sudden you get to like the most aggressive snow you ever skied. And that's dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was just thinking of uh Hinterite and how that that guy preps the hill, that legend, legendary dude with his special uh you know, this special machine. And it's like, it doesn't matter, like you could probably go there in May and you would find like a glacial ice, like just you know, a couple of centimeters under. It's like it is possible, right? But it's it's possible to get like really good conditions um, on a hill that's you know prepared, like purposely prepared for that. So yeah, I mean, maybe that is the way that fish should be looking is like to have, you know, two or three teams of people that are just like, that's all they do. And they, and they cycle through and prepare all the world cup slopes, you know, they like they have like, they, they do have that. Oh, okay. Well, no, but I mean, in that case, it's the people it's, it's doing lost. it once a year. So it's like, they're doing it one time a year. They're preparing a slope. Oh uh, yeah. And, and they have I mean, some like, direction yeah. from this, but it's not, and it's also difficult because they don't want to close down the whole mountain weeks out. Sure. So that tours might be, maybe it's the biggest slope down the hill. So that's the, mm. what we, the challenge we have. I mean, two years ago in Alta Badia, they had the training slope on the back, which was in great condition and the race slope. We wouldn't train on a normal day. It was so bad. All right. Yeah. Hey, Johnny, uh, I, I'm, bit of a, a geek about like equipment and ski boots and stuff like that mostly because i've had a, a troublesome foot to fit and so i've you know had to do a lot of that figuring out myself you got any stories like uh maybe even yourself or on the team are there any people like the, the top guys that you know have to do some quite like different things to make their equipment work for them yeah i mean for me I'm, I'm not a big equipment guy. Like I think a lot of people I see at the young ages, like they'll be on different boots and bindings and skis and every different event because to get an edge and like, I need this metal plate and generally, I think for, I mean, at world cup, it's different, but for that development age, like all the companies make pretty good skis. And, but the big thing to me is that your boot setup has to allow you to move naturally. Um, so I think that, that's really important and a lot of people are like okay this is what all the racers use whatever 0 0.5 0 0.5 and people are built so differently and i had one athlete uh peddler ida and he would be so a-framed in a normal standard setup and you we had to move like i don't know how many degrees but like two or three degrees out to have him moving naturally and now I have like Fabian Solheim and both Alex Kilden. I don't know what Kilda has, but they are moved in because mm -hmm. they're bow-legged naturally. So it's like you want to find something that allows the person. And Fabian always had two aggressive boots. So he would do when it was really icy, he would do really well. Or when it was salt, he would do well. And if it was normal, he would just shake, 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 shake. So to find mm -hmm. that kind of what your natural movement pattern is 
and and to not be afraid if it's very different than somebody else. So right. that's, it's super important. And I'm, I'm not a expert at all, but I can see something and say like, this isn't working. You're yeah. You can see what it's a, a boot problem and yeah. 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 And do you, so yourself, did you ever have, are you pretty like straight? Yeah, I was feet, pretty straight normal. legs. Yeah. Yep. That's not okay. something I struggled with. I had a yeah. lot of bigger problems in my boots. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, so what do you reckon now? Sorry, going right back to the beginning of the interview. What do you, what do you reckon was lacking that you weren't world champion at one point, Johnny? I think a lot of things were lacking for me to be a world <laughs> champion. Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing was uh, to, for me, being better than I was. I'm like, I can't say world champion, but um, mentally I wasn't great. And I would be too worried about what other people thought about me. And I would be too nervous. I had a lot of times where I'd go, to, okay, I'll ski, okay, first run. And I'll go down and I was like, 25th and then the second run i'd be really upset and then i'd win the second run or if i had a good first run then i'd be like oh i better not mess it up now so there was a lot of mental work i could have done is that why you went and studied psychology <laughs> i guess so <laughs> those who can't do yeah t- totally and do you think that's helped has that degree helped do you think have a better understanding and how important that part is when you, you know, continued coaching? Yeah, I think that helped quite a bit. I think just a lot is trying to meet every athlete where they are. And these are human beings and they all are different. I mean, the ideal performance state for one athlete can be completely opposite of somebody else. And that to kind of know where each athlete performs their best and try to help facilitate them, getting them into that state. Um, like I say, Timon Haugen is very similar to the way I was, and he will be really worried about what other people will think and what that he needs to show and how good he is. And then for him, it needs a lot of positive affirmation and to let build him up. And some athletes who are maybe a bit cockier need to be pulled down a bit. I'm like, yeah, you know, I was. You didn't do a good enough job here. You didn't do it like wow. so. It's meeting each person at an individual level, I think, is really important. And it's not like a cookie cutter. This is the way I coach, and this is the way I deal with people. You have to deal with mm. different people because they're so different. Yep. Yeah. What do you think about Timon's move to Van Deer? I think it's. Uh, I think the skis look great. I mean. Um, Ahead was a great company and they were making, I think, probably the most consistent uh, slalom ski last year. So that was for sure, it was a risk. And I went with him to the testing and um, I was super impressed by the the whole company, Marcel. And and, um, just to me, the skis were letting him move more naturally. And so I think it looks really good. And I was surprised a bit, but uh, I think it's going to be good for him. Awesome. It's going to be interesting to see how, uh, how Van Deer performs this season. Um, just to start to wrap this up, I think a good question would be, Johnny, what's the, uh, the number one 
the, the standout thing you've learned for your own coaching from Paul and then Paul, vice versa. What's the, the number one thing you've learned from Johnny for your own coaching? Uh, I, I think love Johnny. For, yeah. for me, from Paulo, what always inspires me uh, about Paul is just the passion that he puts behind his guys and his team and that he will do anything for any one of those guys. It doesn't matter if you're, if it was like uh, Matisse when he was winning or somebody new coming in, it's like, you're going to give everything to it. And that's something that I always really respected and wanted to, I would like other people to see that about me. Thanks, John. Awesome. Um, I mean, I think I kind of already said it. I mean, there's a lot of things with Johnny that I uh, listen to and, and look up to and try to replicate. Um, but what I touched on earlier, I think with, you know, uh, when things are not going well and you think that you suck as a coach and you can't get anything right, you just got to like keep trusting your process, keep trying to reevaluate and learn and know that, uh, you know, if you've been having success, you don't suck as a coach and you're gonna, you know, get, get through this, this hump, you know, and not completely beat yourself up. And, uh, like I said, I mean, I don't know how many different times Johnny and I have texted over the years during the race season. And one of us has been like, I suck. I, I should quit. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And then it's, it's, you know, Johnny, it's mostly me to Johnny, uh, success. <laughs> uh you know but johnny's always you know trying to confirm that as long as you have that passion and that drive and um just keep trusting what you're doing things will turn around and they they always do and and um i think that's something that we also need to as coaches pass on to athletes you know so you don't have these uh mm. complete droughts you know that things are always going to do this through a season and it's better that they stay like this than like this, you know, and, and that's part of when things are not going well to remind the athlete, like, listen, if you were good a week ago, you're still good now. Just stay cool and um, yeah, focus on, on what you need to do. And that's something that Johnny's always, uh, you know, pumped over, over the years. And I think just one thing important is that, I think for anybody who's really passionate and investing anything in it, it's very natural uh, to get really up and down and how important that is for us to recognize that and, uh, and try to be stable for the athletes. Like if they're down, they just had a bad race and then the coach is down too. It's like, it really takes the energy out. And I think that that's something yeah. everyone if you really care, it's natural that you're going to get down, but you have to really try to stay level and build the guys up when that's when they need it the most. And I think it's also the other important thing I'll say is uh, for people, especially when you're, you're one coach with your team to have um, kind of a few trusted people around you. And for me in Europa cup, it was Paul and, uh, Martin Kreisleitner with the Austrian team who I, I skied with and just to have people to be sparring partners because it's easy to get in your tunnel vision. So like, watch my guys, Paul, what do you think? What do you see? Um, that just some guys that you can have as a sparring partner. I think that it's, it's, it's really valuable and you, they'll help you grow. 
like your yep. comment about the athletes sort of talking to each other about this is what I'm working on, having to communicate and maybe, yeah, see things a little bit differently. And that's like if I was to summarize what, what my takeaways are from, from this conversation, one would be that important part, getting getting people, and I don't think it has to be athletes, but if you're in it, you know, you're into your skiing or whatever it is, having people that you can, you know, try and explain what you're working on with and get it across in a, in a understandable way. I think that's a really good process to go through the basics. Like you've mentioned it again, just do the basics. There's, you know, not, nothing wrong with that. And sorry to all the past clients I've had, but I de definitely spent a lot of like teaching people was not about teaching them. I was just getting practice at slow speeds working on my skiing. And, and I think it, like I'm, I'm grateful for that. It helped me accelerate my skiing working, working that level. Um, and then mm -hmm. the other thing, just like we've hardly talked about technique and that sort of stuff much, you know, from, from Johnny who's coaching or coached the, one of the best winningest teams in the world. And what's coming across is just, yeah, how important it is to be passionate and care about care about each each individual. So that's that's really cool. That's my takeaway from it. I don't know if you had any, Sam. Yeah, I think uh, one of the key takeaways I got from you, Johnny, is it seems like the you know the Norwegian team they really, even though this is an individual sport, but it seems like they treat it like a team sport, mm. and that's like why they're so damn good. You know, like the, the, the idea of like uh, coaching each other, helping each other out, you know, giving these great course, course reports, reports and so on. Yeah. I mean, you know, course reports are a pretty standard thing, but like actually, you know, it's, it's very easy to give a shit course report as well, right? Um, but, but yeah, like I, for example, until today, I always assumed that the Norwegian Europe Cup team had a bunch of coaches and a huge amount of staff and because they're so successful, right? Mm. Um, and I reckon that's a awesome takeaway is just that, you know, anyone out there who's listening to this, if you're on a small team uh, or even a bigger team and you've got one coach, you know, you like you and your team can make each other better as well, um, which is... And of course, having a really good coach is pretty pretty helpful too. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's definitely a, a key takeaway for me. Cool, gentlemen. Thanks very much for your time. It's been really good. I think people enjoy this this discussion. So, yeah. Thanks a lot. Until next fun. time. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, people, for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Fascinating to get insights into some top class coaches. Now, just a reminder, we have the Big Picture Skiing Academy program. You know, if you're someone who wants to get prepared for the season, come back skiing better than when you left, that's the goal of the program. Um, please go to bigpictureskiing.com, click on the Academy. We'll also have the link in the description. You can apply for the Academy. Uh, if your application resonates with us, we'll invite you for a free lesson. You'll be able to see exactly um, how we coach online, uh, why it's so effective, and yeah, from there, we can see if it's the right thing for you. We look forward to uh, hopefully meeting you. and Yeah, and you realizing yeah. your best skiing. That's right. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. Some of you may already know that I've been advising Carve and working with the team for some time now. 
and this year the team has come up with probably some of the most exciting developments to date. They've been working on representing the most fun parts of skiing in their system. They've developed three brand new metrics, progressive edging, early weight transfer, and one that measures the G-force in a turn. And that one, I have to say, I got to try it out this winter in Australia, and that is really fun. This new addition is going to be incredible for anyone who's looking to really push their skiing up a notch. Now, what's even more interesting for this year is the system now detects what terrain you're on and pulls that into your ski IQ score. This is a huge change and a great upgrade because sometimes it would only really score well if you were skiing on perfectly groomed snow. Now it's going to accommodate and adjust whether you're skiing in steeper slopes, more chopped up snow or firmer snow. So this is a very big change that I think is massive kudos to the team to keep pushing and progressing the app even further. If you're the kind of skier that is looking for a tool to help push your technique that little bit further, then you should definitely check out what Carve can do. Use the code GELLY15, that's G-E-L-L-I-E-1-5, to get 15% off for the next two weeks.